Hello and welcome to another episode of the Choose Strong Podcast. It's just me today and of course, Miss and Ed, but today's topic is going to be very informational. Uh, I'm putting my coach's hat on today and I am tackling how to train for a 200 mile race. So this is going to be filled with some really good information. I think this will be helpful to anyone that is looking to um, train and race a 200. So if you have family or friends that are looking to do that, please forward this episode. But I also think that anyone that is just training for an ultra in general is going to find today's episode very helpful. I think there's takeaways for everyone. And as always, as I like to do, I think that there is just some good takeaways today for your everyday life. So before I get started, I do want to give a shout out to all of our listeners. I just want to say, just in case no one has told you yet today, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for uh, just allowing me to be a part of your day in some capacity. And thank you for your presence. You choosing this uh, podcast, every download really means a lot to us. And so I just want to say thank you for, for choosing the Choose Strong podcast. Now, whether you are out on a run well done. If you are lifting weights, you're on the bike, you're making food in the kitchen, uh, you are in the car, whatever it is that you're doing, well done on whatever task um, at hand. And I want to give a special shout out um, because we know that this little age group is growing to our youth listeners. So a big shout out to our elementary school students, our junior high students, our high school students. I love that you are listening. And I hope that at some point today, you will remind yourself of the strength inside you. You are very strong and you are the future uh, generation. You are the trailblazers and the strong hearts um, who are going to show us um, all the amazing things uh, that we as humans are capable of doing. And I think that's what's so fun about being a human is pushing the boundaries, adventuring and, and exploring new territories, dreaming new dreams. And I hope that you never, ever, ever lose that. Now, for those of you that are not considered uh, the elementary school, middle school, and high school students, you're a little bit older, um, I'm going to say the same thing to you. Um, it's one of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes, but you are never too old to dream a new dream. And I'd say that just for the youth, too. You're never too young, never too old to dream a new dream. So um, there is your word of encouragement just to kick off this show. Now, I imagine uh, for the majority of the listeners today that you are here to learn. And so I just want to affirm you in that because it is one of the greatest ways to spend your time is learning. And um, I really believe that if you can remind yourself to always be a student, to never stop learning, you are going to grow and achieve so much more in life and be so much more fulfilled because there are always areas that we can improve on. There are always things that we can learn and you are never too young or old to learn something new. While today's topic covers foundational and key details about how to train for a 200 
Panama race, uh, you will most certainly learn a few things you can apply to your everyday life. So now before I dive in to the ins and outs of training, I want to remind you that you can watch this episode on the Choose Strong Podcast YouTube channel where you can sit, you can take notes. Uh, If you're in movement, however, I want you to really focus and hold on to like one or two things that stick out to you today. So really anything that just touches your heart or you're like, wow, that's a good one. Remember those one or two things. I really think that, you know, whether you're sitting in a lecture or you're studying, uh, it's important to challenge yourself. I'm going to hold on to one or two things. And usually if, if you can hold yourself to that, those things will stay with you a little bit longer. So sometimes podcast shows uh, or teachers, when they teach us stuff, it can be a lot to digest all at once. So always challenge yourself, okay, I at least want to hold on to one or two things um, and really let those things stick. And so that's what I want to do um, to remind you today. For those of you that are in movement, think of the one or two things that really stick out to you. And then when you're finished with whatever it is that you're doing, write those things down. I'm a big fan of writing. In fact, if you're watching my YouTube episode right now, see this sketchbook? This is just a plain uh, sketchbook, nice big fat sketchbook. I have kept a journal pretty much since the time I learned how to write. My mom gave me my first journal when I was five years old. I have boxes and boxes of journals, notebooks. I love the pen to paper. I love to draw. I love to sketch. Now, every year I buy multiple notebooks. I love the sketchbook though. This is my catch-all. So not only do I have all my notes to my podcast in here, but I also have quotes in here. I have my training plan in here. I have my to-do list. I have some captions that I write and share on Instagram. I have stuff from my uh, book number two that I'm writing. I have all the logo concepts for the merch that's coming out. There's some journal entries in here. There's some stuff from my early morning devotional time. There is so much in this book. And what I find so valuable in just writing is that you always can go back to it. So I use different colors. You know, I'll get pens and colored pencils and I just draw and write whatever comes to my mind because I don't know about you guys, but the day moves fast. And so often uh, things pop into my mind and I think, man, I need to write that down or I need to remember it. So as it comes to your training, I know that there is online ways to log in your miles. So some people like to use Strava or the Koros app. Um, there's, there's several other ways that you can log your training. But the cool thing is about the the pen to paper is that you can keep that with you. You can keep it in your car, on your desk, on the kitchen counter, on your nightstand, and it can be a catch-all for everything. And just like today's podcast, there's going to be a lot of good information for you. And so if you are embarking on a 200-mile journey, there's a lot of things that you're going to be experiencing. You're going to have a lot of new experiences in your training, as you'll learn today, Um, but just emotionally and mentally. And I really feel like to be good um, at anything you do, you need to train your brain. And one of the most powerful things you can do is to write down things to memorize and to also spend time in remembrance and looking back on how far you've come, on things that you can be grateful for 
before. So I encourage you get some type of journal. I mean, sometimes I just get like the cheap little 50 cent composition uh, notebooks from um, from the store and I'll use those in my training too. I still log stuff on Strava. Most of my Strava is all entirely private, but for the most part, I think that will be a really powerful part of your growing journey. Um, as a coach, that is always something that I encourage my athletes to do, especially when they're in a funk, when they're feeling down. I'll say, hey, I want you to take a minute I want to look back at all the work that you've done. Look at all the training you've done. And hopefully also in that training plan, there's there's quotes, there's reminders, there's um, things in there that are going to encourage them. And I think that is really important to do when you're living a busy life. And whether you're working or you're in school or you're caring for other people, I think it's important to remember that you are constantly building, you're constantly growing, you're constantly learning, you are on a journey. And sometimes some days are going to feel a little bit more overwhelming or heavier than other days. And so it's good to kind of have this catch-all where you can kind of get all that stuff out on paper and it can serve as a way um, to track your growth, to help you improve, um, but also to remember uh, where you've come from and where you are going. So this is also a space where I like to write uh, my goals. Now, because I have so many notes for today, if you are watching this on YouTube, I will be looking down at my notes a lot, but I hope that you, um, if you're in movement right now, you'll have a chance to come back to this podcast and um, maybe take a, a few more notes. So whatever it is, just know that what I share today, um, it absolutely applies to the 200 mile distance, but um, a lot of the elements can be applied to really any endurance uh, events. So first things first, and this is something that I always do with every athlete that I've ever taken on my roster. Now, currently, and I think it's really important for people to know this because we do get quite a few emails every day uh, for coaching requests. We're redoing the salmacray.com website. I am not doing a private roster anymore. This is why we released uh, my app with so many other projects going on, um, including the podcast and the YouTube, um, doing a little bit more speaking and events. We decided to transfer all of the coaching on to the app. But I will say, having worked in, gosh, in, in the sports industry for most of my life, um, I am a multi-certified run coach, um, and I have coached people for over half of my life in soccer, strength and fitness, and running, and in addition to other endurance um, sports as well. So I've spent a lot of time in this space working with athletes. And one of the first things that I like to do when I am approaching someone one-on-one or they need help in an area or they're looking for advice is I interview them because I really believe what is so important for you to remember is that all the things that make you unique should be taken into consideration when you train or whenever you embark on any new goal. I mean, On one hand, that is like one of the most exciting things about your unique life. It's unique to you. You get to write your own unique story. And there's a lot of variables that make up your own unique life. 
Now, as it comes to training plans online, as it comes to science, you are not thought of uniquely. And so you do have to take these things with discernment. You need to do your own research. You need to weigh out your findings. If you're, if you are doing research online, trying to learn about how to train for uh, an ultra event, really take into consideration and understand that there are so many different ways to train for something. There is no one perfect way. I really do believe that. And so by acknowledging that there are many ways to train for a 200 mile race, this is also why I chose to sign up for four. I genuinely, at the start of this year, I wanted to learn about the 200 mile distance. After doing quite a bit of research, I did learn that the 200 mile distance, it is different from the 100 mile race, which is uh, kind of my specialty. That's typically what I do, 100 mile mountain races. Now I wanted to be a student of the 200 mile distance. So I had a plan for each of the four races that I did. And the four races I did were Cocodona 250, where I finished fourth, Tahoe 200, where I finished third, Bigfoot 200, I finished ninth, and Moab 240, uh, where I finished first place. I was also the champion of the Triple Crown and the Grand Slam of 200s. So it was a wonderful year of growth and learning for me. And even after all that, I can say with great confidence that there is still so much that I don't know. There's still so much that I could improve upon and that I could grow in, which always keeps me excited and enthusiastic about my training. And so what I'm going to share with you today is information not only about my findings and what I experienced, again, reminding you all of our experiences are unique, but I am going to blend in just some of my coaching expertise for you, if you will. I don't even think I would call myself necessarily a coaching expert. I've been coaching for a long time. I don't think I'm an expert. Um, I'm always learning and growing in that area, but I've had the privilege of, of coaching many people over the last 20 plus years. And so um, I've learned a lot as a coach and I've learned a lot about how incredible humans are and how different we all are as we approach a race. Now, yes, there's a lot of similarities that we all need to take um, into consideration. And that is really um, where I'm going to transition here in, in just a second, because there's some basics that we all need to do. And there's some foundational things that I think every single person listening needs to take seriously. If you and I sat down together, I would interview you for one or two hours before constructing an initial customized training plan for you. And that would be for you and you alone based on many different variables. And when I say variables, I'm talking about your career, your relationships, your sleeping patterns, history of injury, your unique responsibilities, your history in sports and fitness, your unique body, health, shape, genetics, your diet, your nutritional needs and sensitivities. I mean, the list goes on. And so all of those things are factors when I customize a training program for someone. And there's a couple things that I really need to point out in here. One, you should find a lot of grace in that. And you should find a lot of assurance in knowing that there isn't one strict rule on how to do 
really anything in life, the best way to do something is is really by going out and trying it. And many times it's it's through failure, through setbacks, or all those challenges that you become really good at something. So um, you first need to try and be okay with a little bit of discomfort, be okay with failing, knowing that that is how you learn. So it's important that you understand this foundational information as it pertains to training, because unfortunately, if you don't take into account all of the different variables that that make up who you are, then you're going to be very frustrated. And I see this a lot with athletes. They get frustrated because they scroll through social media, through Strava, and they want to do what everyone else is doing, or they just start comparing themselves. So you must always consider who you are, and you must consider your unique life and your starting point, not someone else's. All right? Okay. So let's get into some important elements everyone can consider when training for a 200. Now that we got all that foundational stuff out of the way. Number one is overall fitness. And I can't stress this enough as it pertains to the 200s because as I said before, the 200 mile distance is, for some of these races, you're getting six days to finish this race. So I want you to think about what you need to do in order to keep moving day after day after day after day. So this is a lot more than than just having run fitness. You want overall fitness. So make that your number one priority. For the most part, you're not training to run a specific pace per mile. You're training to endure for days with little to no rest uh, through changing weather, terrain, multiple nights and sunrises. You're training to eat and drink nonstop, and you're training to be a master of problem solving, a master of flexibility, and staying calm when things fall apart, which uh, they most likely will at some point. So your overall fitness can be built in a variety of ways, not just running. In fact, I highly recommend a variety of different types of cross training so that you don't break the body down before you get to the start line. I do believe this is a common comment that people have, a common belief that when it comes to the 200-mile distance, immediately people think, oh my gosh, Am I going to be running 200 miles a week in training? Or am I going to be training five, six, seven, eight hours a day in order to do that? And so I I really want to dispel those beliefs. This is not just about your running fitness. It's about total fitness. It's about um, being strong head to toe. And so however you can get that volume is going to be really important. But a key to that too is not running yourself down and getting injured before you get to the start line. So let me talk a little bit about how I trained a former client of mine, Deb Hammerlin, and I believe that it's episode seven on here on the Choose Strong podcast that I interviewed her after she ran her first 200 mile race, which was Cocodona 250. And Deb is in her mid to late 50s. And so with that in mind, and especially I, I say this for people that are in their um, in their 50s, 60s, 70s, I do like to add more cross training so that they have 
less of the pounding on the pavement or on, on the trail and are able to make the most of their recovery. And so what I um, did for Deb and she did awesome. She had a wonderful experience at Cocodone and you can go back and listen to that. But I put all kinds of things into her training. Deb loves to ski too. So she did do a lot of skiing. Uh, she did some weight vest uphill hiking quite a bit on the treadmill. We did um, the bike swimming strength training. She did yoga. Deb was doing two a days, I'd say probably three times a week. And then a handful of times we, we would do some really big weekends. And it was really inspiring to watch her training. Now, Deb was incredibly focused dedicated and disciplined in her training, which I'll get to that later. But that also holds a lot of weight in your training. The consistent training day in and day out and doing it at the right intensity will help you be successful in the 200-mile distance. So I can't say this enough. Do not think that the way to train for a 200 is by absolutely decimating your body in the training and just every day is go hard, go home, run all the miles. You want to come up with a plan that's going to allow you to be in top fitness, but not overstressed. And so that brings me to, um, to one of the most important parts of your training. So volume, time on your feet, moving when you're tired, those will be key parts of your training. Now, are there prerequisites to 200? Officially, no. I don't think that you need to go and do X amount of marathons. You don't need to do X amount of hundreds. Um, anyone who has belief in work, work ethic can embark on whatever they love. I really believe that. If, if it's something that you love, you're enthusiastic about it, you can train for it. And I will never tell someone no or that they must do X amount of races first. Uh, that is not my training philosophy. However, I will say this, okay, these go hand in hand. Your ability to consistently train and discipline yourself to the work necessary will always be your most powerful indicator. So can you do the work? Yes or no. Just being able to answer that with no excuses. Can you put that consistent work in? Yes or no. And I think that that is true pretty much for everything that you do in life. It is the number of reps. It's the hours. It's the years that you spend over and over, over consistently putting in the work toward that goal. That is what makes you successful. And so when it comes to training for a 200, that is the most important thing is, are you going to commit to the work? Are you going to get fit? Are you going to show up to the training? Because if you do, great things are going to happen. So how long should you train? Let's go ahead and tackle that. And I think this is probably going to be where it would, uh, this type of question, it's going to apply differently to everyone. So if you've never done an ultra before versus someone who is a seasoned ultra marathoner and you know, they've, or they've just done long distance distances consistently. I'm going to have some different answers. So 
This is why I go back to overall fitness and just training consistency. So if you're a newbie to ultras, I would give yourself eight to 12 months of consistent training before your 200 mile start date. A seasoned athlete, I'd say, you know, six to eight months. Why? Base training. That's why. So your base training, your that that aerobic, this is where you're going to spend time in that aerobic heart rate. That's going to be your bread and butter for the 200 mile distance. Now, I'm a firm believer in I'd rather see an athlete spend too much time in aerobic base building than shorten it and go right into the intense stuff. Because once you get into the intense stuff, the faster stuff, hard hill repeats, you know, intervals, tempos, that's where you start to borderline on um, injury if you're going, if you're doing too much all at once without a good base. So I want you to think of your base as the roots of a tree. Build that up. So I would say spend three to four months building your aerobic base. Check out heart rate training. I'm a big fan of heart rate training. I typically implement heart rate training into some part of my year, usually when I am coming out of an off season and I'm about to start a structured training program, I will first spend anywhere between six and eight weeks just heart rate training making sure, checking in with my fitness, making sure that I'm not jumping in too fast and going out really hard um, and stressing out my body. It's a great way to ease in to a training program. So check out heart rate training. I do like Phil Maffetone's uh, way of aerobic heart rate training. I know that there are different methods. There's a lot of great research out there around it. So I would recommend checking that out. So the goal is to get volume on your legs, you know, that time on your feet, getting your legs used to moving for, like I said, you're going to be out there for days. And so getting your body fit from head to toe is really important. So getting volume on those legs, strength training, you want to dig deep roots into the foundation of your fitness. And so aerobic base training is where you're going to do that. Now, most people don't like that. Most people don't like spending a lot of time in the aerobic base training because it's boring. And um, especially if you're going to stick to like a really strict heart rate training type program. Yeah, it, it feels boring. But I will say this. There's a lot of positives to it. One, you're more likely to stay injury free. And the reason why is when you're in the aerobic zone, you're not stressing your body out. And when you don't stress out your body, let's also add in all the other variables of your life. So if you got kids at home, you're working a, a stressful job, um, and then now you have this stressful training. You have a lot of speed training and, and a lot of different run workouts and a lot of fast stuff. You know, your body reacts to stress um, and it perceives stress in the same way. And so I always like to give aerobic heart rate training, especially to people that are very busy or have a lot of high stress in their life. Aerobic base training, heart rate training, you can approach that with a little bit more of a relaxed perspective, knowing that you just need to get out there, stay in that certain heart rate, settle into it. Some of us like to refer to it as their run forever pace or their conversational pace. It is a more relaxed pace of training. It won't deflate your mind. It doesn't stress out your mind. 
but you can also build into it. You can add a little bit more volume into your training. So you could add in some cycling, um, some easy shorter stair mill sessions. I know stair mill can really get that heart rate up, but you're able to safely build volume without stressing out the body. So the truth is these races, your, your overall pace, it's much slower than a marathon, um, even hundreds. You know, I, I'd say that it really deserves its own category. And um, even if, if you're racing them, you know, even if you are are hoping to race these 200s and get on the podium, there's not a a lot of time spent where you're going to be anaerobic and, you know, pushing to max effort. So I think there might be sections. I mean, I, I, I know that uh, first and second place um, at, at Moab on the guys side, they were racing the last couple miles of that race and they were pushing really hard. So yes, if you're racing these, you're going to have sections where you're pushing hard, but overall, the entirety of your time um, will be in the aerobic or even the recovery pace of training. So if you can think about what that pace is for you right now, and if you do research, you can go on Strava or you can look at the times posted online, you'll see the overall pace is slow. Now, you do have to factor in uh, sleeping, time at aid stations, spent in the med tents, all of that stuff that goes in the pace because you're not stopping the clock. But just know that also means there's there's time for recovery too within it. So overall, it's a much slower paced event. And so this idea of spending three, four, five months in the aerobic base building phase will be very advantageous to you. You know, and I even believe if you're not, if if you're not gonna have a year of racing or you're not racing for like eight or nine months, spend even longer in it. I think it's such a great base to build. Most athletes overlook it. Um, most athletes do not like to be in it. I completely understand every season when I come out of my off season. Um, I think it's super boring too, but I do find a lot of benefit of being in it and easing into my year by spending time in the aerobic base building phase um, in heart rate training. So get fit, take care of your injuries, your imbalances, your lack of mobility, nutritional issues, hydration, sleep, recovery methods, the further you go, the more amplified your current weaknesses will become if you don't work on them right now. So aerobic base building and strength training will be a priority. So I'm going to tackle those things just one more time because um, I know I dove in, into it really quick. Getting fit means, yeah, you're building up that that cardio, you're building up the heart, that that base but a lot of times we tend to only focus on just the cardio part and getting fit means taking care of your body from head to toe. And so I'm a, a huge fan of strength training, of mobility sessions, of recovery sessions where you're stretching, you're doing foam rolling, maybe you're doing some recovery yoga type workouts. All of these things play a massive role into how you feel in your everyday training. So let me just say a few words about strength because this is a 
kind of just like a, a key part of my training, of my messaging, um, of how I've been known in the sport for, I guess, since the time I came in. Strength is kind of like my, what I, I love to talk about the most. And one of the reasons is because I think it's something that everyone can do. So whether you're a runner or not, I do believe that as our bodies break down every single year, the ability and the choice that you have to build strength will allow you to have just a, a better total well-being. You're going to feel better on the daily. And again, I'm not just talking about running, just on a daily basis. When your body is stronger, when you're feeling good, you're able to move through life much more efficiently. You just feel better. You're able to be helpful to other people. Uh, you're able to accomplish more. Strength is a big deal. And so it should never be overlooked. And I believe it should be implemented into your year every month, year round. Now there's all different types of strength training. So that's what I'm going to tackle right now as it pertains to the 200 mile distance. Let's talk a little bit about spot style, duration of sessions, how many sessions, all of that. Now, for the 200 mile distance, I'm not saying you need to go and sign up for CrossFit. I mean, you can, and I've trained athletes who love to CrossFit and do the ultra running, but your needs come down to total body strength, mobility, and balance. Injuries most often are due to lack of mobility or strength. So having worked in a sports PT, I've seen my fair share of healthy, fit athletes who have been injured because of a lack of mobility um, or balance. They're, they're totally just off balance. And guess what the PT then uh, gives them? They give them band exercises. They give them body weight exercises, stability board exercises, mobility exercises. Now, for those of you listening, some of you are shaking your head and you're like, yeah, I was given 16 exercises to do for, for like 12 weeks straight, three times a week. Be really frustrating, right? So I want you to plan right now. Don't be reactive. Don't wait for these things to happen, especially as you're building up. Be proactive. Now, get my app. Um, I really mean that. So much of my app is based on body weight exercises, band exercises, all stuff that you can do at home. I think I have one gym workout in there and there's hundreds of workouts in there, um, all right down to specific categories. So there's mobility workouts in there uh, that tackle head to toe, ankles, your, your calves, feet, hips, back, shoulders. I mean, everything. There's strength workouts in there. There's strength workouts that you can do in eight minutes. There's follow along workouts in there. Um, and all different types of, of strength and mobility that, that tackles, uh, different body parts specifically. So that's the other thing too, that's important to remember. There isn't one perfect strength workout or even warm up or cool down routine. You really got to make it fit you. And that's why my app is broken up, um, into so many different categories. Because for some of you listening, you do have chronic problems with certain areas of your body, which you'll just always have to deal with. Now, for me, I have a chronic imbalance. It's just kind of the way my body was made. I always have to work on my hips and my glutes. Now, there was a time when I ignored those things 
And this is when I first started ultra running and I got a host of injuries because of it. Once I went to the PT and learned what I needed to do, I have never strayed from those routines. So I spend a lot of time building up my hips and my glutes. I spend a lot of time on mobility, um, single leg exercises, coordination exercises. Just yesterday, part of my workout routine was 30 minutes on the AstroTurf at my gym doing mobility, working out the ankles, moving the hips in all the different directions, um, focusing on that balance, the coordination, making sure that I'm completely mobile. It's really easy, especially the older we get or when we're in the thick of training, to get very stiff. And as runners, because we're just constantly moving forward and doing the same motion, it's easy to not even understand how stiff and immobile we actually are until we commit to doing a mobility routine and then we're like, oh my gosh, I needed that. Oh my gosh, I'm so tight. I'm so stiff. So do not be reactive in these things. You need to start implementing these things now. And again, I can't stress this enough for the 200 mile distance. You want to be mobile. You want to be strong. You want to be enduring. So just to reiterate, your first few months should not be hardcore stressful, intense training. You might be wondering if you're doing enough. That's very, uh, I feel like that's pretty normal in the base building phase because you generally feel pretty good when you're just in the aerobic base building phase. Uh, if you keep the intensity low, you can build volume in a low heart rate. You can cross train to add volume um, and strength train, but you should feel generally pretty good as you become fitter and fitter. I want you to think of yourself as a redwood tree. Now, a redwood tree takes many, 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 many years to grow. However, a mushroom only takes a couple days to grow. <laughs> so you're not fungus. You're a sturdy, strong tree with deep roots built to endure any storm that comes your way. That's what you're looking for when you're building up to a 200-mile race. You do want to be able to endure anything that comes your way. And so build a strong base, build a strong body. You get to do that. You get to carve out that one unique body that's been given to you and make it strong. So I wouldn't obsess over weight. I know this is really common just when it comes to any type of, of fitness and training. We, we obsess over weight. I say obsess over strength, obsess over getting strong obsess over getting enduring. I think that um, you're going to enjoy the training a little bit more too when you do that. Now, personally, I wanted to put weight on when I was training for Cocodona 250. Now, because I'm pretty much training um, year round, it's my job to train. I'm generally uh, always pretty fit. In the off season, I do allow myself to put on weight um, I don't have a strict structure in my off season, but even more so last year when I came into training for Coconut 250, I wanted to put on muscle weight. One of the reasons why was because I signed up for four 200 mile races. Now, I don't think it takes a rocket scientist to know that I would be dropping weight uh, with each passing race. And especially because Tahoe 200 and Bigfoot 200 were only 17 days apart. 
I definitely dropped quite a bit of weight in between those two races. I mean, I was, I I raced over 400 miles, uh, within 17 days. So I wanted to get ahead of the game. I wanted knowing that I was going to lose weight. I was going to lose some muscle. I wanted to be strong and enduring until the end. And so I want to encourage you in that too. focus on getting strong, focus on getting enduring, Focus on taking care of those imbalances, those weaknesses, those areas where you're not mobile. That should be the main focus, okay? Don't obsess over over your weight. So that's how you should view your training. It takes patience to build a massive aerobic base. It's not flashy. It's nothing you're going to brag about, but maybe that's good for you. Humble yourself and do the patient, quiet work every single day. That's what the base building uh, training is about. It's not flashy. Let's move on to mentality. I already have that as number two before we have even gotten to other nitty gritty types of fitness. The reason why is, you know, your your mind will be your most powerful tool in the 200s. It will. Because, you know, what your mind believes the body achieves. I, I can't say that enough. If you believe it in your mind, if you have planned for the obstacles, you have solutions for the setbacks, that is so powerful. And so I'm just going to talk a little bit about your mind. Now, how you respond to fatigue, setbacks, challenging climbs at 2 a.m. on the third day, heat, a nasty stomach or intestines, you're going to learn a lot about yourself. So you got to train yourself to stay calm. You got to train yourself uh, to be enduring in these situations. You will be uncomfortable. So that aerobic, boring training that sometimes will last four or five, maybe eight hours sometimes, that's easy. That is easy in comparison to what you're going to feel during the race. Now imagine moving for 20, 50, 80, 110 hours with a brain that at times will be doing anything (laughs) to convince you to stop. So this is why your overall fitness and and strength is so important. If you're aerobically not fit, unable to endure, and let's say 20 hours in, you're feeling the pain or discomfort from an injury or ache you chose to ignore, it will be much easier to DNF, uh, did not finish. So your overall fitness... And your ability to endure physically is going to complement your mind. So if you're in a a tough point, a low point mentally, um, having a strong fit body is going to be an advantage for you. Here's a nice, gentle way that you can work on mental training. If you are not used to being in uncomfortable situations let's say just in your everyday life or um, maybe not even in in sports, maybe you're brand new to running um, or just sports in general or or training in general. It is going to be difficult when you hit those points in a race and maybe they scare you, uh, they alarm you. And so it's good to put yourself in uncomfortable situations in training. Now, of course, this is fabricated discomfort. It's a little bit different, but it will allow you to interact with your mind And you are going to learn about how you talk to yourself. And this is something that I think many of us can always improve on because it's easy when we are in a place of discomfort, when we are in a challenging setting that we tend to be negative or we kind of beat ourselves up or, 
you know, we just don't talk to ourselves so nicely sometimes. So I like to encourage people to put themselves in places of discomfort and learn how to work through it. So um, some, some things that you can do, you can structure your aerobic training and give yourself maybe like one day a week where you are uncomfortable. You're just going to go be uncomfortable. So you could wear extra layers for a run or a ride on the bike indoors. Um, another thing that you can do is take away all stimulation like music, watching Netflix. Let's say that you like to run in your treadmill or do an indoor bike. Sit on your bike for an hour without anything. Um, run on the treadmill without anything. Don't don't watch a show. Don't listen to a podcast. Don't listen to music. And just see how well you do running or riding for an hour or two hours, however long, and see where your mind goes. Now, for some people, they might be thinking, oh my gosh, that sounds so boring. <laughs> that would drive me crazy. I mean, I get asked that all the time. Don't you get so bored when you run that far? Don't you, um, you know, just get tired of the silence and what do you think about? And I think that we are all different in that way. I think that I've spent enough years of my, of my life doing ultra running and running in the mountains that there are certainly things that I do that actually will cause the miles to go by very fast, or I'm just able to settle into a point of peace and prayer and meditation and really work through discomfort and, and work through the miles, knowing that I'm on a journey, knowing that um, I'm, I'm getting closer to the finish line or getting closer to the end of my training, that there is a purpose in my training. And so I want to encourage you to put yourself into an uncomfortable situation, maybe like once a week. And you can you don't have to do this as soon as you start training. I'd say definitely try to do it at the start of, you know, maybe three, four months before your race. And if you are going to be doing, you know, wearing extra layers, make sure you hydrate well, uh, you know, really bulk up on those electrolytes because too much heat training or not paying attention to your hydration, it can really beat up the rest of your training and can make you feel run down. So um, take care of your body uh, post session, fuel it up, give it what it needs, but just allow yourself, you know, to spend time with you and your brain. We live in a very loud, distracted uh, world right now. And you'll notice if you're waiting in line, let's say, uh, you know, anywhere really, whether you're waiting in line to pick up your kids or you're waiting in line to order food or a coffee, everyone's on their phone. I think we're at a, in a time in our world right now where we actually don't know how to just sit still. Um, patience is a lot harder to practice because there's always stimulation around us. There's always someone that we can text or call or a social media app that we can scroll through that will help distract us from the boredom that comes from waiting in line. And so being able to interact with boredom and get inside your head, it's going to be really powerful for you in your training. Now, personally, I love to train to music. I love listening to podcasts. So I don't do that every single session. Um, but I will be very particular about when I am going to put myself into an uncomfortable training session and just work through things. Let's go ahead and, and tackle just a little bit more specifically the types of workouts that are going to be key for you as you train for a 200 mile race. 
So I'm going to share a little bit about what I did specifically when I was training for my first 200, which is Cocodona 250. I documented on YouTube, I believe it was for 14 weeks, my training leading up to Cocodona. We had 14 episodes. I mean, my training was longer than 14 weeks, but we did, uh, maybe it was 16 episodes. Anyway, you can check that out on the YouTube channel. So you can see some of my training there. Um, I only did a handful of like true run workouts a month. The majority of what I did after base training was mountainous or hilly runs and hikes with a heavy pack. This was likely the first time in all of my career and really ever since entering ultra running that I practiced hiking and just fast-paced walking. It was... That was a new discipline for me and something that I I really grew in in respect for because I I learned and after watching a lot of documentaries, looking at the pace, I did find that it is advantageous to practice some strong power hiking. And I did that quite a bit in, in all of my races, especially because you're out there for so long. You want to be strong at every single pace. So I know for me, I wanted to be strong on the uphills. I wanted to be a strong downhill runner. I know that's where I could make up time and and distance by being able to run um, downhill. I knew that if I hit flat sections, I wanted to use those times. If it was a long flat section, let's say like at Moab 240, for example, there was a 27-mile dirt road flat. I mean, it indulated just a little bit, but for the most part, there was no reason for me to hike. And so I was very strategic and how I planned where I was going to push the pace in my running. And then the other places where I was going to preserve my legs for running, where I knew that I needed to be strong, power hiking, and just moving efficiently. And so power hiking with a, a heavy loaded hydration vest or a weight vest was very beneficial to me. I'm very happy that I did that. So let me go ahead and just break down what my weekly workouts looked like. It was two to three times a week in the mountains or in the local canyons here. So here in um, Southern California, we have some awesome coastal trails that have some pretty deep canyons and you can get really good climbing and descending in them. And so in my location where I live in the world, I am able to get to a 10,000-foot mountain pretty quickly. It's about 45 minutes away from my house. And then I can get to some really good climbing and and, um, canyon-type running and hills just uh, 10, 15 minutes um, down the road. And so I made sure that after I did the bulk of my base training, this is what my week looked like. So two to three times a week in the mountains or the canyons, And then I did one to two times a week where I would do like an ultra long distance. So anything past the marathon distance. Um, And really, I'd say anything past 25 miles. But multiple times, I would do 30 mile back to back. And then maybe on the third day, I would do like 10 to 15 miles, something like that. So I usually try to do that once or twice a month in my lead up to Cocodona. And really what I was practicing there was just moving on tired legs. 
Most of the time when I would be doing those ultra distances, I typically lifted in the morning. And my times in the gym are anywhere between one and a half to two hours um, of lifting in the morning. So I would have, you know, a couple times a month, some extra long weekends, some extra long hours. Now I live a very real life as well. I'm a business owner. I'm a mom. I'm a wife. I'm very involved in my family's life. And so you know, having to implement two-a-days into my program, that's been a staple uh, because running is also my career, but that has been a staple for most of my career. Um, but I always like to encourage other people who also have careers and, and families. Two-a-days are possible if you are willing to commit to getting up really early in the morning. Now, I realize not everyone likes to get up early in the morning, and for some people, that just does not work. Um, they're cranky and tired or they they work, you know, the early morning shift, or the graveyard shift. It's just not going to happen. But regardless of how you break up your training, you know, if you're able to do have a, uh, some sessions where you can do a double day, some of what you're doing there is training the brain. You know, you do a session sometime in the morning and then you're tired, recovering, you're recovering throughout the day. And then it's like, oh, yeah, I got to go move again in the evening whether that's before dinner, after dinner, after the whole family's gone to bed. Again, what you're assimilating is the 200-mile distance conditions because you're doing that days on end. You are running in the morning, throughout the day, and into the night. So if you can implement two-a-days, I would recommend that, even if you're just doing it um, a few times a month. Having back-to-back long-run days is good too. You don't need to do that every single weekend. I know that isn't always possible for people's schedule. And then people in the past have asked me, you know, is that a negative that I can't do that? And it's not. Your your bread and butter is going to be overall fitness. Just get as fit as possible. So adding in these other things, um, back-to-back long runs, two-a-days, what you're doing there is uh, you're doing a lot for your brain in there. You are assimilating, assimilating some, some race stuff. But if you can only plan to do that a couple times a month, that's going to be great because you're going to call upon that in the race. You're going to remember what you did in training. And I always like to encourage uh, my athletes in this. This is another reason why it's good to record your progress and and why even if you can only do something a few times in training is because you can remind yourself when you hit those low points in a race, when you hit those points of discomfort and you can say, I trained for this. I did do this. I do know how to do it. So do the best with what you have. Three to five times a week, I was in the gym doing weights and stair mill. And like I said, most days of the week, I'm I'm doing a double day. And my sessions in the gym can be one to two hours long. And it usually does consist of some type of cardio on a machine just to get that extra volume in there. And then weight training. Like I said, I was trying to put on uh, muscle weight. I wanted to be as strong as possible. And so that was a big deal to me. The most important thing that I could do though, was, uh, the prehab PT type exercises. So I did a lot with bands. Um, I did a lot with, you know, just a kettlebell or one dumbbell, uh, my body weight, but every now and then I'd say like one or two times a week, uh, with the exception of, you know, two weeks, you know, 10 days, probably before the, the race, I did like to lift heavy. 
And whether it was just a handful of exercises that I did that or just a couple exercises, it just felt good. I've been lifting since I was 16. And so I really do enjoy weight lifting. But overall, for everyone listening, I just, I, I think what's the most important is that your body is just strong in its own weight. So if you're just doing body weight type strength training, awesome. That's going to be a huge advantage for you. If you want to get some just medium weight type dumbbells, wonderful. You don't have to do uh, weekly, you know, heavy lifting if that's not what you're into. I just say pay attention to where you're, you have imbalances and where you have weaknesses, get mobile, get flexible, and yeah, make sure that body is strong. And then one day a week, I was doing some type of like weight vest training, or I would pack like a heavy pack, maybe for like when I did Cocodona, for example, you know, that first section, the first 38 miles, you want to have, they say four liters of water. I brought five liters of water. I'm a big drinker. And so I always feel like whatever the recommended water is, I always go above and beyond that. I would rather carry more water than to be completely dehydrated. Pay attention to that in some of these races. If they are telling you that you have to carry all this required gear, and then you're also seeing that some of these aid stations are 20 miles apart, which is very true to destination trails. Their aid stations are very far apart. Every now and then you might get some close together. But even if an aid station says that it's 12 miles apart, I mean, that could take you four or five hours to get to, depending on the terrain, the time of day, what the weather is like, um, how you are feeling. So you want to be able to get used to carrying heavy weight in your pack. And I'm going to talk about gear here in, in a little bit, but it really is important that you are practicing with a heavy hydration vest because as far as I know, every 200 mile race in the United States, and this isn't true for even, I don't, I don't even think, I'm trying to think what, how many races in the United States even have required gear. You know, Western States, I know doesn't. I'm pretty sure Hard Rock probably has some required gear. I haven't done that race before, but I would think when you're up that high, you would need it. But there's very few races here in the United States that you need required gear. Internationally, almost every race I've done internationally, yes, every single race I've done internationally, there's required gear. So the internationals coming into the United States that are going to be doing these 200s, they're used to, to carrying required gear. But it is a lot. And I'd say the heaviest thing you're going to be carrying is liquid. Because if the aid stations are far apart, water is heavy. I want to say that for every liter you carry, it's two and a half pounds. I don't know what the um I don't I don't know how to calculate in, in other measurements of what that is, but you know, that's that's a lot of weight. And so I knew when I was training for Cocodona, that's 10 pounds if I'm going to carry five liters of water. Now, obviously you're drinking it, so your pack is getting lighter as, as you're drinking, but then there's other required gear in your bag. So one day a week, I would put on a 20-pound weight vest, and I live very close to the ocean, so I would go and I'd walk in the sand for two hours with a 20-pound weight vest and layers. It was a very uncomfortable session, um, but I did that multiple times. Very glad that I did. I never had back problems. Uh, my bones never ached. My hips didn't hurt. Knees didn't hurt in any of these races. And I really do think that the strength training paid off and walking with a weight vest. I was not running with a 20-pound weight vest. It was just solid 
hiking, efficient hiking. Sometimes I would wear the weight vest and just do laps in my neighborhood. You know, you just do a loop over and over again. You're getting some good mental training in by doing that. Sometimes I would just walk, you know, on the road four miles in one direction and then turn around and go walk back to my car. And the whole purpose was to really focus on keeping a strong core, walking tall, walking efficiently, getting used to this heavy weight. So two to three days a week in the mountains or canyons, climbing around. I wanted some good hill training, some good climbing. One to two uh, days a week, I would do like an ultra long distance or really just anything 25 miles or more. And then three to five days a week were spent in the gym doing weights uh, in addition to stair mill. And then one day a week, I would be adding in a weight vest uh, workout either on the road or in the sand. So I'd say I was training um, six to seven days a week. Those are specific workout stuff that I was doing on the days that I wasn't doing like a specific workout or a focused on, on hill training or weight vest. I was just getting in the miles. Now, one approach I like to give people is focus on the time on your feet and not so much the miles. That was something I did for Cocodona. I really cared more about the hours that I spent training than how many miles I was running. Again, you're not going, you know, like a road marathon, you really do focus on pace. And many times when people train for a road marathon, they stand at the start line with a roundabout very good idea what they're going to finish that race in, what they'll be running every single mile, what their pace is going to be every single mile. Um, I would even say the shorter distances on the trails, like a 50K, for example, you can kind of guess a roundabout time that you're going to be um, finishing. The 200s, there's so many things that arise in these 200s that can add on five hours, 10 hours, 20 hours that you might not expect. And so you want to be able to train your your mind and body to spend a lot of time on your feet. And so one thing that you can do is just construct your, your training in, in accordance to time. You know, I'm going to go out today. I'm going to spend two hours on my feet. I'm going to go into the mountains or into the hills, and I'm just going to move for six hours straight. I'm going to get on the stair mill. I'm going to do an hour on the stair mill and, and 30 minutes on the bike. Okay, I'm going to do an hour and a half of cardio straight. So I think that that's also a, a more gentle way to approach the training. Again, if you are living a high-stress life, you have a lot going on while you're training for this, sometimes just getting the time in is a better way to approach it than trying to hit a certain pace or a certain distance. Let's go ahead and talk about sleep. I feel like this is the million-dollar question. It is likely, I'd say, the top question that I was asked about when it came to both training and racing, if not in the top two. So sleep is a big deal, and I, I'd say, in short, everyone is different. And, and what I mean in that, I want you to think personally about how you sleep right now just in your everyday life. So would you consider yourself someone that like, if you do not get eight or more hours a night, you have a hard time functioning, you're irritable, uh, you, you just don't do well throughout the day if you get less than eight hours. Some of you listening actually do really well on five hours of sleep, which I think is a massive gift. <laughs> For those of you that can function well and have lived a lot of your life on little sleep, that... I mean, you're going to enjoy the 200s just right off the bat, but I, I don't want to discourage anyone that that needs a lot of sleep because the reality is everyone on the start line of all of these races that I did, 
They come from every background, every walk of life. The age group spanned over like 50 years. I mean, I met people in their 20s, people all the way up to their 70s plus. I, I love that. There's something very encouraging about that. So don't count yourself out if you don't do well on little sleep. I think when you have a, an adventure and experience and you know, okay, I'm going to be getting little sleep. You know the importance of banking your sleep. You know the importance of going into the race rested, of having a proper taper. All of those will help you out big time, regardless of how much sleep you need each night. Now, me personally, I've spent most of my life, um, I'd say up until Eddie and I got married, especially only sleeping four hours a night. That's how I always functioned all the way up into my 20s. Um, And then, of course, for those of you that are parents, you understand what it is to get up with a baby in the middle of the night, to have to go to work the next day on really junky sleep, or just to be going nonstop throughout the week and the weekend, you know, with school activities, social activities, sports. Yeah, it's easy to feel like, man, I'm tired a lot, but yet I'm still accomplishing a lot. I know there's a lot of recent science. There's a lot of talk on sleep. There's people always trying to look to improve their strength. We're seeing with recovery methods how important it is that we get good sleep. So what I want to encourage you in is throughout your training, as you are leading up to this race, it's important that you make sleep a priority. Sleep is not a priority when you're racing a 200. The priority is getting to the finish line. You will be tired. Even if you're someone that functions great on little sleep, you are going to be absolutely exhausted by the time you get to the finish line. So this kind of goes in hand-to-hand with the mental side of the training that you're redoing. When you expect to be tired, when you know that's just the part of getting to the finish line, you're not going to be so shocked and discouraged by it. You are going to be tired. But let's talk a little bit about strategies because there is talk about doing a 200-mile race within like a 70, 75-hour time frame and not needing a a sleep schedule and being able to to kind of get to the finish line and, and feel okay. Once you go beyond that, it is important that you start really thinking about a sleep schedule. Now, What I did for each of these races, I did something different every race. I I really was experimenting, but also I had a lot of physical discomfort and challenges that arose in these races, primarily in the first race that then compounded all the way through all my races. So sleep was always kind of an obstacle for me, but I learned a lot in it. And so I'm just going to share with you what I learned, what I observed from others, and what other people have communicated with me in this. So I've learned a lot in the sleep realm of the 200s. There are some athletes who will go into these and their plan is that every 15 hours, every 20 hours, they'll sleep. So they'll push hard for 15 hours and then they'll sleep for an hour. Then they'll get up, push for another 15, they'll sleep for an hour. And some people it's, you know, every 15 hours I'll sleep for two hours or three hours or four hours. That's that's also something that you start to figure out the more you do these. So if you're kind of like, hey, this is going to just be on my bucket list. It's a one and done type thing. This is an adventure that I'm excited to embark on, but I don't really see myself doing a lot of them. I would say plan to have a sleep schedule. 
because what you are doing is you're setting yourself up to finish stronger and faster in the end. Like you can always kind of pick up the pace at the end um, because you're well rested. And we have seen many runners do this and really do well. You know, they they will pass people who haven't slept in two days who are now having hallucinations and completely delusional, wandering around going, you know, 45 minutes a mile because they didn't sleep at all. They're not rested. They're not feeling great. Whereas someone else who has gotten six hours, seven hours of sleep within those two days is now running past the person that didn't sleep at all. And so I would err on the side of having a sleep schedule that has you sleeping with at least within the first 24 hours. So that's what I did at Coconut 250. So I ran 80 miles and then my goal was to sleep at mile 80 because I knew I would run those first 80 miles in under 24 hours, which I did. I then slept for, it was like 60, 75 minutes. I felt amazing. I got up after that 75 minutes. It was just what I needed because I will say the the miles leading up to it, I was really tired. A big part of it was me battling some physical discomfort. I felt like that really drained a lot of my energy. And that's something to consider when you're battling physical discomfort or stuff arises, challenges arise, that takes your energy out of you. And so I was pretty weary Um, When I arrived at mile 80, I was very happy to sleep. I fell asleep immediately. I slept like a baby. I got up, I moved, and I didn't sleep again. Let's see, that was mile 80. I don't think I slept again for like another 50 miles. And I fell asleep on a table for like maybe five minutes in an aid station. And that was all I needed. So cat naps in 200s are really powerful. So I'd say I probably took, over the course of the 250 miles, I took about four cat naps. So uh, maybe on a table at an aid station. And cat naps were under 10 minutes. On a couple times, I was on a log and a rock. And all those times, except for when I was in aid station. So I think I was one aid station. I fell asleep and the other three were on rocks or log. I would try to keep it at seven minutes. Seven minutes was like the magic number for me. Um, As the races went on, I could do like five minutes. So five to seven minutes and I felt amazing and I could run for hours and hours just on, on that. But I did have another planned sleep at Cocodona. So I I think then it was about 170 miles in. I slept for 90 minutes. And then there was a 15 minutes where I lay down on a cot. Uh, That was about 40 miles from from the finish line. So I had the most structured sleeping at Cocodona. And I think that did help. But again, I had probably the most physical pain I've ever experienced in a race was at Cocodona. And so that sleep was necessary. That sleep is actually what helped me continue to battle through that pain, push through that pain. A rested mind, a rested body is going to be a more powerful body. So if you're looking to race these and you want to get in under that 75 hour mark and you and you're thinking like, yeah, I think I, I can push through that, still go in with an idea of like, I want to rest somewhere. I think that the route, look at the course map, look at what other people have done. I listen to a lot of podcasts 
And I listened to some runners talk about specific places that they slept, or if it was a really hot race, they would sleep at the hottest times of the day. Um, I think that's a really wise strategy too. Think of yourself as moving the best um, if you're doing a hot race, and I think a few of these are pretty hot races. Think of yourself moving the best when it's coolest. Uh, your body, you know, that that temperature is is going to be lower, and so your body's just going to feel better. It's going to feel more comfortable. And so if you are going to structure your sleep, for the most part, now I would say have a loose structure because you don't know how fast you're going to be getting these aid stations. Just try and choose to sleep when it's the hottest part of the day. So your sleep's going to be all over the place, but sleep is important. And it's going to allow you to move and push harder at the end. Extreme fatigue, hallucinations, um, just straight up delusionment is real. And, and really, that doesn't matter how fit you are. So let me just kind of break down my experience with sleep. I told you a little bit about Cocodona. Let me break down the other ones. So Tahoe 200, I was really sick. In fact, I spent over two hours at one aid station. I think I I tried to lay down. I maybe got five minutes of sleep. I don't even I don't even think I ever really fell, fell asleep. I really never fell asleep in that entire race. I was I was very sick, sleep deprived, and then I made a big mistake of not bringing Billy, my pacer, with me um, for those last miles. I also was not able to keep down very many calories. So I was sleep deprived, no calories. Thank goodness that I have my map on my cell phone. I kind of come in and out of uh, reality during those um, last miles, but I knew that I needed to follow the dot on my phone, on my topo map. So that was very, very helpful to me. And I think, you know, if I could have done that race again, I probably would have force myself to take a, like a solid rest or at least really try to make myself fall asleep in that aid station where I was just laying there um, because I did no help to myself. So Bigfoot 200, I was that was only 17 days after Tahoe. I went in still a little bit sick. I was weary. It was a slow struggle from the start, but I did sleep. I'd say total in that race, I probably slept for almost five hours in that race. I was in one aid station for almost three hours, a lot of vomiting, but I did sleep. I slept a lot on logs and rocks and just moved very slowly in that race. I had some mild hallucinations. I wasn't as, I wasn't struggling in that delusional state like I was at Tahoe. I was just very, very, very tired. And I felt like because I was so weary going into that into that race, what's important to know because I was so tired was that f- the physical pain was magnified. And I, I think that's good to remember in these 200s that if you aren't getting good sleep, all the discomfort you feel, all the irritability, it's just magnified. You have a hard time battling it, resisting it. You know, all of your defenses are down. You're just too tired. And so this is another thing to keep in mind as you're looking at scheduling sleep and maybe scheduling, okay, every 24 hours, I'm going to try to get a couple hours of sleep or every 15 hours, I'm going to try to get 60 minutes of sleep. You are allowing yourself to recover. You're giving yourself the best chance at moving forward in a more efficient way. And you're giving yourself an opportunity to work through discomfort with a little bit of a a better uh, frame of mind too. Now, Moab, I think that I slept, I think there's a couple times that I slept like 10 minutes in the car. And then outside of that, it was 
it, then I didn't sleep at all. And it was just at the very end, I took a handful of dirt naps and those were only a couple minutes long. So that race, I purposely, out of all of them, I had told myself, I'm not sleeping at all. I'm going full send. I'm racing. I'm pushing hard. And I did as best I could. Still had a lot of physical things that I was working through, was in a lot of physical discomfort. And I'd say that those last uh, 12 miles were pretty rough. I had a lot of hallucinating and was kind of all over the place. Thankfully, I had a pacer. I was talking according to him and about really funny things and was seeing random things and didn't make any sense. So um, it was very nice having a pacer in in the end there. But I did finish past 80 hours. And so had I finished earlier, I don't think I would have uh, struggled with that. Now, Moab this year was, that was the longest course. They did add miles to the course this year, almost 15 miles and about 4,000 feet of climbing. And so I was not taking that into consideration, uh, especially at the beginning of the year. I thought that's going to be my fastest race. That's where we're going to finish. But, you know, even just 15 miles or maybe it was 13, 13 to 15 miles and 4,000 feet of climbing. I mean, in a 200 mile distance, that's four or five extra hours. So and I would say that it was it was really the last three, four hours that I was really struggling with the hallucination. So that taught me a lot. Um, that idea of of getting in between 70, 75 hours and not needing a lot of sleep, um, I felt like I could have done that at Moab. So again, this is going to be really personal to you, but my best advice is if you're going in for the first time, plan to get some sleep at least in the first 24 hours, whether it's 45 minutes or an hour or two hours. Um, and then you can either then play it by ear after that or just continue with that cadence. Okay, every 15 hours, I'm going to do this. Or every 20 hours, I'm going to do this. Or every 24 hours. So you can kind of pick and choose. And again, that could um, really play out in accordance to the weather or what your overall pace is as you get started in the race. And just keep your crew up to date with with how you're feeling. And I'll talk a little bit more about crew in just a bit because you don't you don't have to have crew. And there are sleep stations. But I, I do want to explore sleep more. I will say that I think that um, there's definitely a lot more that I need to learn in that area. And I think there's just a lot more even research that, that can be done. I have heard every type of sleep schedule and strategy out there. I, I don't think there is a perfect one yet, but I do believe that anytime you're you're pushing yourself days on end without sleep, it is going to disrupt your performance. It's going to affect your overall state of mind and how you interact with challenges. Um, it's going to affect your pace. And so, you know, sometimes even if you're looking to race these, it is important to consider sleeping at some point because you just might be able to finish faster and run faster at the end when you really need it because you were more rested. Um, let me go ahead and, and just tackle some gear. We're going to talk about drop bags, aid stations, crew, pacers. All of these things are really important. And um, these are things that you can start working on in the lead up to the race. And I always like to say when it comes to gear, when it comes to crew and pacers, be flexible. Have the best things laid out. Study. Have a plan. Have structure. But remember, if it all falls apart, you're going to be okay. And usually it's those that are the most well-planned, that have the best structure, but have 
the, the lightest grip that are going to do better. So don't get so married to your race plan, to your crew, to your pacers, to a certain pace or whatever it is, thinking that's the only way you're going to be successful. The way you're going to be successful is by consistently training, going into these races with overall fitness, and then having a good idea of how you want to interact with your gear, with your crew, with drop bags, aid stations, and having a good knowledge of the course itself. So gear, some things that you absolutely need. Obviously shoes, get multiple shoes. Uh, I'd say that unlike the 100 mile distance, I never change shoes in, in 100s, but in the 200s, I always change shoes. Some people change them every time they see their crew. Make sure you check out how many times you can see your crew. Um, some people change them every chance they get. So every time they see their crew and every time they have a drop bag, they'll, they'll change their shoes and socks. Now, I'd say that every race that I did, it was a good idea to wear gaiters. And I think this is also why people would change shoes and socks each time. You got everything from granite dust out at Tahoe 200. You have that red sand in Moab. Um, there was that volcanic uh, scree and dust and, and dirt up at Bigfoot. And then you're running through the desert in all different types of terrain at Coconut 250. So having gaiters, and uh, if you're not familiar with gaiters, it looks like a sock that goes over your shoe, but it helps keep the stuff out of your shoe. I uh, highly recommend those. Now, the shorts that I chose were Spanish shorts with pockets. Because I was always checking my phone. I was very hypersensitive about staying on course for these races. I got these um, awesome, I think it's the Nike Go spandex shorts, and they have like five pockets in them and deep pockets down the side of the thighs. But I just kept my phone in there for the most part because I was accessing it so much. I'd always take it out, look at it, make sure I was on course. Even if I had my pacer with me, I was always double checking. I probably drove them crazy. But having shorts with lots of pockets is going to be advantageous. You can keep trash in there. You can shove in extra food. Your pack will be pretty full. And so having shorts with pockets will also allow you just to carry more stuff. I would always err on the side of carrying too much food than not having enough, um, especially if you start to understand how slowly you move in certain sections, you want to make sure you have enough fuel. So shorts with a good amount of pockets is key. I'd say that even if you're used to racing with a um, maybe like a tank top or a sleeveless shirt, go for a shirt that either has long sleeves and it's like super light and dry fit. That's what I did at Cocodona to protect myself from the sun. Um, but make sure you have a shirt that at least has sleeves or you're wearing arm sleeves in addition to a short sleeve shirt. One of the reasons is because you do not take that pack off. And it really does, um, it can start to wear and even chafe into your arms and into your shoulders because you're having it for on for so long and it, it gets really heavy. Um, you're also protecting the shoulders from the sun as well. So I love racing in a tank top. I'd say shorter distance races, even in hundreds. There's many times I, I only race in a tank top. But for all of these races, for the bulk of the race, I did wear a long sleeve shirt or a shirt with with cap sleeves. Couple times, if it was like 30 miles out and I knew I'd be finishing in the day or I was getting really hot, I would then change into a tank top for the la very last part of the race. Okay, for a hat. Yes, you need a hat. You need a hat pretty much the whole entire time. I 
did wear a sun hat that covered up my nose and my mouth. And the reason why I did that was because of how long I was outside. You can not only get chapped from the sun, your face, your lips, your nose, you get chapped from the wind and from the cold. It's common for people to get blisters, to get sunburned, uh, to get, you know, like that that sun rash, you know, that you might get when you're like, or a wind rash that you get when you're really dry. You can also get severely dehydrated through your nose, your mouth, uh, in the wind. And so I used a sun hat that covered up my nose and my mouth for the no- most part just for that reason. I wanted to protect it from the sun, from the wind, the elements. In Cocodona 250, there was some gnarly wind the first 60 miles. And so having that sun hat was key so that I wasn't sucking in dust. And I always had sunglasses with me. I even recommend those clear glasses for night. So if you're running somewhere and it's really windy, you want to keep that dirt out of your eyes. You want to keep your eyes um, from getting too dry. Then invest in some clear glasses. A bandana has multiple uses. And in fact, at one point on the Bigfoot 200 course, I was using, and the cotton bandana is usually like a buck. You can get them anywhere at a craft store. Um, you can get them online. But I always have a bandana with me. And, and at the Bigfoot 200 course, I was, <laughs> I'm laughing thinking about it because I remember I, Joe was pacing me too. But I was using them, the bandana to ward off biting flies. It was crazy how many biting flies were on this road section. It was only like a mile and a half on the road. There were so many flies around and that bandana came in in handy. I was able to keep myself from getting bitten by all these flies because I was using that bandana to swat flies. (laughs) So a bandana is great. You can shove it in a pocket. You can put it around your neck. Um, I often use a cotton bandana whenever I come across a stream or a river. I will soak it. And I'll rub it all over my face. It feels so nice. You can take the salt and the dirt and the sweat off your face. Um, You can clear out your nose. You can use it on your neck and your head. You can squeeze water on your neck and your head. It also serves as a bandage. I've used a a bandana many times. If I've taken a fall or I've skinned um, a knee or a hand, um, I use that bandana. I've wrapped it around um, different injuries. You can also use it as a sun hat. So if you're wearing a basic you know, hat like what I'm wearing right now, which is just a a basic baseball hat. You can put a wet bandana over your head and then put the hat over it. And the bandana can act as a flap that protects your shoulders and your neck in the sunlight. So I'd say bring a bandana in addition to a buff. Your hydration vests, I notice all different types of hydration vests in the 200s. Some people had like legit day packs Uh, It wasn't necessarily a running pack, but it was like a day pack. Now, I used the Camelback Apex Pro. It was perfect for these 200s. I used it for all four races. One of the things I love about the Apex Pro pack by Camelback is that it has a special technology that if you get lost, you can be found. Gosh, I'm so embarrassed that I don't have the pack in front of me because it's called something specific, but it's written on on the inside of pack. Uh, This special technology, it does not need like to be charged or anything like that. It's woven into the pack and it's something that search and rescue uses. So 
I'll have to put it in the show notes. I apologize. But the pack is called the Apex Pro, and I believe it's coming out in January of 2024. You want a hydration vest that has a lot of pockets, that has the ability to carry a lot of water and to hold all your stuff. You need to practice carrying all the required gear before you get to race week. In fact, anytime I went to the mountains, I always trained with the required gear. I always ran with the required gear in my vest. It was just normal. That was what was normal to me. And I think that the more that you do that, the more that you're going to be at peace knowing what it feels like to run with a heavy vest and to run with all that required gear. So make sure that you have a vest that fits all that stuff. And again, because you're going at a slower, a slower pace, it's okay if you don't get a running vest, a running specific vest. You need to get a pack that's a little bit bigger. Um, I know Camelback makes some bigger packs too. I know other brands do as well. But the key is that you feel comfortable and that you have everything that you need to successfully move through each and every day. So I noticed some runners would even have hydration vests that snapped around the waist too. So not just across the chest, um, just for that added back support. So that is going to be key. That's going to be living on your back for days straight. Make sure you get one that's comfortable, that fits all the required gear, and especially can hold enough water for you. Poles are optional. I was told to use them at Cocodona 250 that I would absolutely need them. I never used them. I carried them a lot in that race. I felt that I didn't need them in that race. I did use them at Tahoe 200 because I was so sick. And I did feel like that there were some pretty good climbs there where I really appreciated having poles. So I do recommend them for Tahoe 200. For Bigfoot 200, 100% you're going to want poles. That's the most rugged of all the races. So Bigfoot 200, gorgeous course. It's rugged. You're out there. You really do feel like you are out there. There's a lot of green tunnels in that race. And what I mean by green tunnels is you are inside the forest climbing for a long time. So poles are really nice to have. For Moab 240, I did use them. There are some long extended climbs. And I felt like at this point, because I was battling so much with some wounds on my feet, the poles were nice to have to help alleviate that pressure. But also at Moab 240, you do climb pretty high. So I think at one point you hit almost 11,000 feet. And so it is nice when you're working up a really steep climb to have poles, um, especially in that thin air when you're you're breathing a little heavy. Uh, gloves are a must, absolute must. I say bring a, a backup for that. Storm jacket, storm pants, a wool layer. All of these things are typically on the on the websites of what it is that you have to bring. But I'll tell you what, you need to practice with all of this stuff. Practice with your socks, with your shoes, your shirt, everything that you are going to wear. Make sure you're comfortable with it. Make sure that you like it. Um, I was really grateful because before I ran, I believe it was Bigfoot 200, there was this pair of shorts that I really loved. And I had, had only been wearing them for really short runs. And then right before, no, it was right before I, I raced mob, I went out for a longer run in the mountains and I did not like them for more than two hours. So it's important that 
you practice with your gear for longer than two hours because sometimes stuff just shifts and then you'll start to notice it's not as comfortable as you thought it was. So practice with your gear. Uh, you don't want your gear to be bothersome. You don't want it to take up energy. You don't want it to be the reason why you're chafing so bad or getting a really bad blister. So make sure you test that out. Drop bags, aid stations, crew, and pacers. Here's the deal. Yes, you can 100% do a 200-mile race without crew and pacers. I've noticed that if you are not going to use a pacer or crew, the runners will link up with other people that don't have pacers or crew, or they just find out you know, what other runners are, are running at about the same pace. And it's super cool. I mean, a lot of these runners end up being best friends with these people. Uh, you can really go on some amazing adventures just with other runners. So you don't need to have crew or pacers. I would highly recommend, though, that if you do want crew or pacers, put it out in the uh, group Facebook pages. Most of these races have Facebook pages, community pages for those people that are running. You're going to find crew and pacers that way, especially if you do it early enough. And there's always people in the ultra community that want to do recon on these races or just have the experience or just love to crew and pace. It is something that you can put out there. If you put it out, you know, enough in advance, then you are going to find crew and pacers. But I don't want you to believe that you are not a candidate for these races if you don't have crew or pacers. I, every single race, I met people at the pre-registration that didn't have crew or pacers and they completed the race. You have good support in those aid stations. You have medical in the aid stations. You, everyone is required to carry the map on their phone. And so, you know, you have the map as, as to where you should go. So you can definitely do the race without career pacers. But I would also say if you are going to do it without career pacers, make sure you, you utilize the drop bags, make use of, of all of them. In closing, I do want to remind you as I, as I wrap this up, I did do a, there is a part one to the 200 mile training racing. And in that, I talk a little bit about like the commitment, finances. Yeah, just all the other details that are outside of training. So I do recommend that you go back and you listen to that one too. And I also break down what my favorite of the 200 mile races were. Now I have been talking for quite some time. So <laughs> I I just want to say thank you at this point in the podcast for staying with me, for sticking with me. If you are watching, well done. I hope that you're taking some really good notes, but I do kind of want to recap everything for you because I covered a lot of information here and there's a lot of good stuff in here, but let me just break it down for you in a way that you can kind of do like a checklist to make sure that you got everything. So one, yes, you can do a 200 mile race. I'd say nail down what your personal goal and strategy is before you start a training program, because your goal and strategy should be woven into what your training program is. Two, get fit head to toe, not just running fit, be strong in mind and body, take care of your imbalances, and make sure you get my app, because I absolutely will help you do that in the app. Uh, the link for my app is in the show notes. Three, spend your most time in training in the aerobic base building phase. I want you to do your best to be an endurance monster, mentally enduring, long hours on your feet, 
um, which also means you're, you want to be strong in the gym. So get in the gym and strength train. So strong from head to toe, get in the gym, lift those weights. But the most important part is being able to lift your body weight. So even if you don't do the heavy weights, be strong just in your own body. Number four, track your training, track your recovery, track your nutrition. You are putting in a lot of work in the training, but leading up into race day, you want to make sure that you're topped out and you're leveled on your nutrition. Now, I personally like to do inside tracker for my blood testing. It always helps me see the other areas where I need to improve on my nutrition. You can go and ask your doctor for a blood panel, but those are always good markers to look at as you're entering in a big phase of training and before you go into a race. You want to give yourself a good advantage. Number five, practice your nutrition sources and introduce new options. I want to suggest to you one of my favorites, was broth mixed with instant potatoes. Now, what Eddie would do is he would get the jet boil and he would heat up the broth and then he would just pour in instant potatoes into that. It was a lifesaver in many of the races. It was hot, it was easy to digest, and it was a lot of calories, easy on the stomach. You could also take all of that, throw it into a Ziploc baggie or one of those reusable food pouches, and you can bring it with you out on the trail. But it's important that you understand in the 200-mile distance, you will likely get sick of maybe the, the sports nutrition that you're using right now. So you probably don't want to fuel entirely just on gels or just on sports blocks or jelly beans or whatever it is that you use. Have variety, have options. You'll be surprised at, as the days go on, how you'll, you're going to be craving things like a burger or a sandwich or some, a plate of eggs or some pancakes or, you know, real food. Your body's going to want real food. So, on the long days that you're training, practice that. Bring some sandwiches with you. Bring some bars with you. Even stuff that you might not think that you would normally eat, bring it with you. Um, I love dried fruit or uh, even like banana chips. I, I was so shocked at some of the things that I ate in these races or or I thought that I would eat and that I didn't eat. So um, make sure that you practice those things during your long run uh, training sessions. Number six, practice your gear over and over and over. Every day is a good day to practice your gear, especially during those long runs. Number seven, find solutions before you get to the start line. Don't be surprised by a blister. Don't be surprised by a a bad belly or intestines. Don't be surprised by fatigue. That's a weak mindset to be surprised by that stuff. You need to assume that there is going to be some amount of discomfort in these races, but not in a pessimistic way, not in a, oh, woes me, nothing ever works out for me, Um, this just isn't my day. No, 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 no. Have solutions for those things so that when they come, you're like, I know what to do. Don't give it too much energy. Don't spend so much time on it. Don't let it rule your experience. Have solutions before you get to the start line. That is how... You can become more mentally tough, more mentally prepared, really. That's how you're more mentally prepared is you plan for those things in advance, have a solution for every possible potential setback that's going to happen in the race, know what to do, and then you move forward from it. You don't dwell on it, okay? It is a part of it, so expect it. And on that same note, 
you know, don't look for the setbacks. I think sometimes when I talk about this, people then get to the start line and they're almost afraid of like, oh my gosh, later on when I'm uncomfortable. Don't focus or look for those things. Look for the good things. Always look for the positive. Always stay hopeful. Always choose to be strong. Um, Look to connect with people. Look at the beauty around you. Look at the experience that you're having. But if a setback arises, don't let it surprise you or discourage you. So you want to stay hopeful, optimistic, positive. Honestly, you can handle anything thrown at you. You can. You have to believe that. that that's what you're, that, that's the, uh, the plan right now is to keep telling yourself that. I can handle anything that's out there. I mean, honestly, if you if you need some visual inspiration or motivation, or I don't even know what would be motivation, uh, visual examples of some of the setbacks that um, I experienced and how I worked through them, please check out my YouTube channel. I have uh, two documentaries that documented my 200-mile races. We have a third one coming out at the end of this year, so that's gonna be like in a month. But, you know, I was very open and very public about a lot of the setbacks that I had. I did not have smooth races for any of these 200. So, again, even though I'm sharing all this information with you, just because I finished it as, as the triple crown champion, grand slam champion, winning Moab, um, getting on the podium at Tahoe, that doesn't mean that I had perfectly smooth experiences. Okay. So, and I, I think it's really important that regardless of what your goals are, whether you're, you know that you're going to finish um, in the middle of the pack or you want to get up on that podium or um, you want to get in right before that cutoff time, that you understand that the road is going to be riddled with all different types of obstacles. It is for all of us, but truly it comes down to how you react with it, how you respond, and that is your choice. You get to choose how to respond. But the cool thing is, is that you can plan on how you will respond right now. You can plan how you're going to work through things in your training. And I think, you know, earlier when I was talking about get on a bike and just ride in complete boredom for an hour, think about that stuff. Go through all the challenges in your head. Okay, if I get a blister, this is what I'm going to do. Oh, maybe I should like maybe research how to care for my feet. Maybe there's a book I could buy on how to care for my feet. Maybe there's like better socks or um, better bandages or taping procedures that I can do before I get to the start line. I mean, all these things, you can really become a student in how to respond to the challenges and the setbacks that could potentially come in these races. That's how you're going to set yourself up for success. In closing, I, I do need to say this. I'm so proud of you for embarking on this goal of running a 200-mile race. I really am. It takes a lot of courage. takes a lot of bravery. It takes belief in yourself to even fill out a registration form. And even if you are not looking to do a 200-mile race, but just any goal as a whole, know that your time, your effort, the work that you put in, it is worth it because you are worth it and no one else can get your goals for you. And I want you to remember that as you move through the training, as you look toward this goal, that it is a journey and you're not going to achieve all of these gains in your training overnight or in the first three days or just in the first month. It's little by little, brick by brick. The work that you consistently do is what is going to set you up for success. So be a student, 
do the work and don't quit. Don't ever, ever, ever quit. I don't care how many years it takes you. And not everyone gets the first 200 as a, as a success the first time. It might take you two, three, four, five, six times. I say this for um, any distance that you are signing up for. I say this for any goal um, that you have for yourself. It is okay if you don't achieve it the first time. That is literally a part of the process. So failing and setbacks are a part of it. That's how you grow. That's how you get better. That's how you become stronger in every possible way. Okay. So remember, as you set out for this, I'm giving you tools that are going to make you strong and um, are going to help you in this journey. But the best thing that you can do for yourself is to put yourself out there and try and to not quit. So in closing, and I am going to wrap this up now, I just want to say thank you again for being here. I want to encourage you in all of your efforts. I want to encourage you in the work of your hands And I urge you to believe in the value of your life and your dreams. And lastly, and most importantly, I implore you to keep choosing strong in all that you do. 